This is a CBC Podcast. Want a weekly roundup of the best CBC Radio programming? Subscribe to the CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Get a digest of the week's top stories. Read in-depth articles. Listen to interviews and documentaries. And get the lowdown on upcoming stories from CBC Radio 1 that you need to hear. To subscribe, go to cbc.ca slash radio and look for the subscribe button. The CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Be informed. Dante, Anine, Buju, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Eden Robinson has been on the Canlit scene for years. Her first novel, Monkey Beach, came out in 2000 and made a huge splash. It was shortlisted for the Giller Prize and the Governor General's Award and won her the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. In 2017, she published Son of a Trickster, a coming-of-age book about Jared, who discovers he's the son of Weejit, or Trickster. That book turned into the first of a trilogy. But as she was writing that trilogy, Eden faced some challenges. Her father was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and she moved back home to help take care of him. Eden was also diagnosed with a rare form of rheumatoid arthritis that made it difficult for her to even write. Eden joins me from our Vancouver studio to talk about her work, her life, and finding the balance between it all with laughter. Welcome, Eden. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be back. Uh, It's funny that we should start laughing right away, Eden, because one of the things that's written about you in pretty much every article (laughs) and every interview is your memorable contagious laugh. And, you know, I really do have the quiet laugh in my family. Uh, (laughs) I don't believe you. (laughs) I'm the shy, demure one. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You've met Carla. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Yes, I have met your sister, Carla. How does that humor appear in your work? Well, if you read like the stuff I wrote in my 20s, it's very earnest. Mm. I'm very sad and grim and the world is dark. Uh, and in true Capricorn fashion, as I get older, I get younger. Mm. Uh, so they've been steadily getting more bonkers. <laughs> I'd say. I'd say. I have to agree with that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All the other books were written in the evening, and the Trickster series was written very early in the morning. Yeah, does that make a difference? Apparently it does. Apparently, uh, apparently my inner editor is like, I'm not getting up. <laughs> <laughs> no way, hell no. <laughs> so if you're having trouble shutting off your inner editor, I would highly recommend waking up at four in the morning. Now, it wasn't humor, though, that initially inspired you to write. As you said earlier, you're very earnest. What inspired the very first story you ever wrote? The very first story I wrote was a short story called Trap Lines. I had in my mind a young gentleman who was in, you know, in a very dysfunctional family. You also mm-hmm. wrote in school, horror mm-hmm. fanfic, I understand. Yes, in grade 11. Uh, I always loved horror. And uh, my favorite movie at the t- in front grade 11 was Scanners, directed by David Cronenberg. And for those of you unfamiliar with it, it was <laughs> moody teens who could blow up your head with the power of their mind. 
Who doesn't want to do that? Yeah, you know, uh, it was, uh, ironically enough, it had an open ending, which I didn't like. So I ended the movie in a short story the way I wanted it to end. Yeah. Um, and now that I've written a couple of open endings myself, I see what he was doing. <laughs> oh, that's what happened there. <laughs> When you were when you were sharing your you know your very early stories before Monkey Beach, like sharing them with classmates, what was that like for you to have to have your work read out in front of your peers like that? You know, it took me a long time to get the hang of writing short stories, mm. uh, and by then I had been through a lot of poetry workshops. <laughs> you know, to me it wasn't like a super dark story. It was you know maybe medium dark. Uh, <laughs> wasn't as dark as I could go. Yeah. Uh, and my classmates found it a little traumatizing. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, I'm drawn to dark stories. Like, mm. for, I like reading them. I like writing them. Um, so I was very lucky to find the mentors that I did find. Like, my first fiction mentor was Bill Valgerson, mm-hmm. uh, an Icelandic writer who did, like, <laughs> super dark a collection of short stories and we would just laugh about how disturbing our stories got <laughs> and I didn't realize how rare that was until much later when people would not read the whole thing uh, even for class because they were disturbed by the violence oh my goodness yeah. in those early days who who were you influenced by oh god I was worshipping at the altar of Raymond Carver mm. um, so I did not believe in adjectives or adverbs <laughs> as I went on and started discovering indigenous writers uh, I realized that adjectives and adverbs weren't you know your enemy <laughs> life-changing <laughs> life-changing so Eden you started out doing horror writing and transitioned to writing about the supernatural but from mm-hmm. you know from a first nation perspective what compelled mm-hmm. you to incorporate those elements into your writing uh, well, the trickster in particular was just because within my own family, uh, the trickster stories weren't being told to the to the young folk. <laughs> 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 and when they were, you know, you could tell that they weren't getting the context. And uh, well, you know, they weren't laughing. And that was a big part of after dinner for me. Like we would all sit around and tell stories. And we get stories where always, you know, wild and funny and fast and so I wrote a short story putting we get in a modern setting then about 50 pages in I thought well maybe it's a novella and then when I hit 400 pages it was like I guess it's a novel (laughs) (laughs) I had a lot more to say about the son of Wigget than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the son of Wigget had more to say to you. Yes, mm. I think that is the way to look at it. Yeah. And of course, now it's turned into a trilogy. The first book is called Son of a Trickster. The second is called Trickster Drift. And for those listeners who haven't read the books yet, here's a quick recap. It's weird. <laughs> oh, it's angsty weird. It's angsty weird. <laughs> <laughs> So so the official recap is that it's a coming-of-age story that follows Jared, who's haunted by ghosts. His mother is a witch and discovers his father is Weegit, or Trickster. Uh, Now, Trickster is a character, of course, as you know, that pops up in many First Nation um, mythologies. The Cree, we call him Wasaki Jack. Who is Trickster for you? 
We get is the transforming raven, and um, he had a sister that's not as well known named Dawson's, uh, suspiciously married many times. <laughs> In the fictional world, you know, he has about 537 kids. <laughs> Give or take? Give or take, yeah. And uh, Jared is baby boy, like 321. And his his mom is a pretty powerful witch, but, mm. but her gift is hexes. Um, she doesn't really do a lot of hexes because if someone's annoyed her, she would rather throttle them. So her and Jared had this complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the end of Son of a Trickster... Um, you know, he goes to AA and sobers up, and then it's even more complicated. Whereas his relationship with Weget is much less complicated. He just doesn't like the way that he's interacted with his family. Like, he didn't show up in Jared's life through, like, the really hard period. So, uh, so when he finally does show up, and, and spoiler alert, Jared's not as grateful as Weget thinks he should be. <laughs> Uh, so in the second book, he's still an offstage character. They can communicate uh, mind to mind. And, you know, their communications are not any better in their own heads than they were when they were face to face. But in the third book, Jared and we get start to hash things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Jared needs to know about a lot of things. So the main character of the book, Jared, finds out, as you said, he's the son of Trickster. Is this a thing, though? Are people... Related to Trickster, have you heard of this kind of story going around community? Not in our community. Uh, and again, I'm using the Trickster stories that aren't a part of the like the the winter ceremonies. Mm-hmm. That Trickster, I won't go anywhere near because it involves highest luck copyright. Right, and right. It's really expensive. Yes. <laughs> Now, this story, as you had said earlier, started out as a short story, then mm-hmm. it was a novella, then it was a novel, and now it's a trilogy. So how did that happen, Eden? Like- <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, in the first novel, um, it was just like a giant mess. I had all these ideas I was trying to ram together. Uh, and the first draft, I got about three quarters of the way into the book, and I started doing kinematic flashbacks. Because I started the short story when Jared arrives in Vancouver and then flashed back to Kitimat, had a lot of fun in Kitimat, kept flashing back. So eventually it was like a 50-page chapter in Vancouver and then another 50-page chapter in Kitimat and then a 50-page chapter. And and so it's going back and forth. And my first readers found that it slowed the novel to a dead stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I edited it so that all the Kitimat chunks were stuck together in a novella, in the middle of a novel. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I sent to my editor. And she's like, um. (laughs) So she went, okay, hear me out. Just throwing it out there. But um, you've got a lot of characters. It's a very complicated plot. Maybe we can simplify it and simplify one of the elements by making it, making the plot linear. (laughs) <laughs> and that was mind-blowing to me because I'd never written anything linear before. Uh, so once I did that, the kinemat section expanded. And and so by the time it hit 200 pages, I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, 
throw this out there, but what if we make the Kitimat section its own book? <laughs> so we had to redo the contract and mm-hmm. uh, negotiate things again. And then, so Son of a Trickster was its own novel, and then uh, the Vancouver section was supposed to be just one novel. But again, you know, when I reached the 400 page mark and I still hadn't introduced the main antagonist, um, I realized that it, it was, in fact, two novels. <laughs> So it is just three novels because I want to get back to my trashy band council romance. So you know, four is a sacred number. <laughs> I will use that. You're welcome. You can have that. And the series has been met by rave reviews. Son of a Trickster got you your second nomination for the Giller Prize and Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Were you surprised by the reception? <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. It's a pretty bonkers novel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I'm pretty sure my cousins will like it. <laughs> and that'll carry the book. <laughs> Got a lot of cousins. What do you think people are seeing in, in these in these novels of the supernatural that, that's got them so enwrapped in it? I think a, a lot of indigenous people my age, you know, had some very messy connections with their family. I think that's been explored many ways, mm-hmm. but in my family in particular, there was always a sort of goofy element of just just the way that we fought and argued and just the way that relationships can be complicated. Mm-hmm. For sure. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild, joined today by author Eden Robinson for an extended conversation, most of which has been laughter so far. <laughs> and there it is, the famous laugh itself. Now, while working on your Trickster trilogy, you moved from Vancouver back to Kitimat to help with your father. Yes. Yeah, Johnny, why, why did you uh, want to go back home and take care of him? I went back in 2003. Uh, Dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 1998. His older brother had had it, so we had an idea of uh, what he was in for. Uh, what we didn't know that his was one of the slow-progressing Parkinson's, so we had a lot of time together. And I'm you know, very grateful for that. Mm. When I first moved back, The only thing I knew about Parkinson's, I gleaned from The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. The the character in the book was like at the end stage of Parkinson's. And Mm -hmm. I was expecting Dad to behave like that. And uh, he didn't. (laughs) 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 He was at the beginning. And, uh, you know, he was still fishing. Like he was still uh, net fishing. Each species of salmon requires a different net. When I moved back, the sockeye were running, so he set his sockeye net. When I got in, he was telling me, you know, oh, you know, how, you know, he was just getting tired and he he was kind of scared and, you know, Mm. and, you know, if, if I could help him with the net, that would be great. And then we got down the dock. His runabout was tied three boats out. He just sort of like nimbly kind of walked along the edges of all the boats to get there. <laughs> so I had to go in the boats, you know, slosh over and go up out of the boats. And at that point, you know, I was still pretty citified. So I had my, the only rubber boots I had had kitten heels. 
So I couldn't really do any of the fancy edge walking that he was doing. Um, as we were checking the dead, I realized that, you know, he wasn't as weak as he was claiming. And so when the fish are running, you check your net between five and six times a day. And the net is usually like 100 feet long. It has lead lined bottoms and corks in the top. And you pull it up uh, leaning over the side of your boat. And it's, it makes your arms really buff. Mm. Uh, and if you catch a fish, it's even heavier. And if there's logs or anything caught in it, you have to, you have to take them out. Right. Um, so you do that <laughs> starting at, you know, six in the morning, going to six at night. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, dad was still pretty fit. I tried living with my parents because I thought, you know, they would, they would need my help around the house. And we ended up like arguing a lot, like about how to load the dishwasher, the way that you, you've swept. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I moved to town, um, and then they opened up, uh, a couple of years later, they opened up an apartment building in the village, and I moved into that, which was two blocks from my parents. Mm-hmm. So in the morning, when Dad was still healthy, like he would come over and we'd have coffee. Uh, it wasn't until like the last two years that he became like housebound. Mm. It wasn't so much the tremors, it was the stiffness that that aggravated him mm-hmm. and he was very frustrated because he'd always been an outdoors person he'd always been very active and high energy and he didn't like being low energy and not getting out so in in the morning after we had coffee we would go for a drive uh so we'd drive around and he would tell me stories mm. they are some of my favorite memories now yeah in fact, I, I believe, is it correct that your father inspired your writing because of his outdoorsiness? Yes. You know, he really was a big fan of uh, Bogos. Uh, he said the reason we don't see them anymore is because they built a mall. Uh, and and Bogos being Sasquatch. Course, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Okay. <laughs> and they're too busy shopping to visit us anymore. <laughs> he didn't like. Uh, the Discovery Channel's finding Bigfoot because he thought that was a Sasquatch harassment. So he said they'll never find them, though, because they have Squatch Book. <laughs> so whenever uh, whenever a research team or a, te- or a TV team goes onto their territory, they all post about it on Squatch Book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm beginning to understand where you got your imagination from. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> Sasquatch, Sasquatch is going to make an appearance in the final Trickster series yes. as your father passed away in 2017, yes. shortly after Son of a Trickster was released. So we didn't get to see the fruition of Trickster Drift. No, yeah. no, and again, he would probably be disappointed because there's no Sasquatches. <laughs> so there will be a gratuitous Sasquatch scene in book three. While you were dealing with that loss, of course. Shortly after that, your grandmother Alice. Yes, Hunt Alice also passed uh, away. Alice Annie Hunt. Uh, we all called her Granny Annie. Uh, she passed away in May 2018. Mm. Uh, you know, it was hard for me, but it was much harder for my aunts who were her caretakers. And in fact, Granny Annie inspired a character in Trickster Drift. Tell me about her. Ah, uh, yes, she was. Uh, well, you know, Aunt. Aunt Maeve's driving is completely from me, uh, but her big heart is from Gran. Like, uh, Gran was well known 
in Vancouver and Bella Bella in our community as the person that, you know, she took in a lot of lost people and she had a particular talent for loving people who didn't know how to love themselves yet. Mm. So it was, it was quite the memorial. Uh, a lot of people told me Granny Annie stories uh, that I hadn't known. It must have been really difficult, of course, for you to have to deal with these losses and balancing what was going on there with your with promotion of this this new book. But then something else happened. You received a medical diagnosis yourself. Yes. Well, rheumatoid arthritis runs down my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family. So I was, you know, kind of resigned to getting rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. Uh, But instead I got like one of the more exotic variants of it. And my family was like, oh, couldn't get the same stuff that we had. Had to get something special. (laughs) (laughs) It's polymyalgia rheumatica. Uh, If you've ever had a frozen shoulder, you have arthritis in your muscles and your joints. Uh, So it's it's the pain feels more like fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. So we were running with an assumption that it was fibromyalgia, but the tests were coming back super weird. So when my shoulders were frozen, um, I don't know, it's like kind of like those Muppets in Sesame Street that, you know, couldn't put their arms down. You know, you can't really do a lot until my GP and rheumatologist figured out what I had. Uh, And it's usually seen in women who are in their 80s. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. How are you able to write with with this illness? I'm pretty stubborn. You figure out ways like. You know, if you can't sit at your computer, then, you know, I've I had to get lighter laptops so that I can, you know, write in different places. Um, I bought my dad a lift chair so that, you know, when he had trouble getting out, he could do it by himself. And uh, when I'm super stiff, (laughs) I'll write in the lift chair. Mm. And uh, it's it's just become one of my favorite places in my apartment. So I got to say that um, through all of this, you've managed to stay, you know, your chipper self. What helps you work through the pain? Well, I have a very obsessive personality. So once I get rolling on something, it's it's like a form of meditation. So on top of writing best-selling books, one of your books, Monkey Beach, is being made into a movie. Yes. Directed by Loretta Todd, coming yes. out later this year. Oh my goodness, so exciting. How are yes. you involved in that production? Well, in the beginning, she she asked me if I she asked me to write the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I banged my head against it for 3 years before <laughs> I realized I really hated it. Oh no. <laughs> short it's you know this it's very structured you have to go to a lot of meetings um so i fired myself and she really wanted it to be like a fully indigenous production and when they got the go for filming this fall alas i was on book tour for trickster drift for most of the filming Mm -hmm. but the times that i did get to go on set you know it was the first feature for a lot of the young indigenous actors Mm -hmm. and she was such a patient mentor like just watching her you know be a leader was just amazing what was it like to see your words come to life though in in that way super weird 
Yeah? Super weird. When they live in your head for so long to see them being actualized, it was thrilling and scary and uh, confusing and wonderful Mm. and mostly surreal. Yeah. And now um, with the second book in the Trickster series out, Mm -hmm. I'm working on the third. Do you have Mm -hmm. any idea what you're going to work on once the trilogy? Well, we hope it's a trilogy now. Uh, (laughs) It's finished. Oh, my trashy band council romance. What? Oh, yes. That was what I was working on before I went to work on that trickster stuff. Well, Eden, it's always a super fun time with you. Thank you. It's always a hoot with you. Eden's latest novel is Trickster Drift, the second in a trilogy. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Still ahead. When author Jenny K. Dupuis wrote the children's book, I Am Not a Number, she knew it was important to translate it into Anishinaabe Moen, the language her grandmother was punished for speaking in residential school. Jenny really wanted to have this translation done in the Nipissing dialect. I felt compelled that I should do it because I knew her grandmother. I knew her and I, uh, and I felt I owed that to her. That's in just a few minutes. But first, Rebecca Rowanhorse didn't see a sci-fi or fantasy book with an Indigenous person as the lead character. So she wrote one. Trail of Lightning was released in June and was the first book of Rowanhorse's series called The Sixth World. Her second book, Storm of Locusts, will be out in a few weeks. I caught up with Rebecca when she was at the Indigenous Comic Con in November and I asked her what was happening in her life when she started writing Trail of Lightning. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, uh, actually, uh, my day jo- in my day job, I'm a lawyer. So I was practicing law by day, taking care of a baby and um, going a little bit crazy. Uh, so I needed something just for me. And I started writing this book. I've always been a huge sci-fi and fantasy fan. And uh, this was sort of my escape, something for me to do that... Uh, was mine alone. It didn't have to do with childcare and the day job. That sounds so superhero to me. By day, lawyer. By night, writer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So tell me about, about your character. Who is she? Who is Maggie? Maggie Hosky is a monster slayer. So the story takes place in a post-apocalyptic future, probably around 2035 or so, so the near future. And there's been cataclysmic climate change, and uh, the majority of the world is underwater. But one of the few places that's still standing and doing well is the Navajo Nation. And so Maggie is Navajo. She lives on the Navajo Nation. And uh, the gods and the heroes and the monsters of Navajo traditional stories uh, have come back to walk the land. So Maggie is a monster hunter, which is a fine Navajo tradition. (laughs) And uh, she deals with all the gods and tricksters and and everything that sort of comes her way as she tries to survive this apocalyptic future. And, And what does Maggie look like? Describe her for us. Oh, well... She's Navajo. She's pretty badass. I imagine her being pretty tall, uh, fairly muscular. She can hold her own. No braids, no feathers, nothing like that. And uh, she carries a a shotgun and a number of knives. (laughs) Because what girl does it, really? (laughs) Exactly. And I understand she has a very interesting sidekick. Oh, uh, 
Kai Arviso. Yes. So, so like any good superhero, she does need a sidekick. Um, and her sidekick <laughs> is the grandson of a medicine man who's her friend, uh, one of the few people that she can call a friend. Uh, and Kai Arviso comes into the picture pretty early, and he is pretty much the opposite of Maggie. He's, he's young, he's flashy, he's uh, a little bit too laid back for her taste, a little too much from the city. He is from what's left of Albuquerque, which we, I call the Burke in the book. So they make sort of an interesting pair. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting pair. Why was it important for you to design and write the characters this way, contemporary? One of my real goals was good representation. This book, to me, is a correction of a lot of the stereotypes and a lot of the limited representation I've seen of Native characters. And I wanted a character that was clearly part of her culture. I think a lot of Native characters that we see are stuck in the past. We often get stuck somewhere in the late 1800s and we're usually uh, dead or dying to make room for for white western expansion and so I didn't want to set characters in the past I wanted to make them contemporary or set them in the future so it was important for me to do that to show uh, native readers and non-native readers that we're alive and we're thriving and our cultures will continue uh, now and into the future. Mm-hmm. And so in sharing these corrections, as you say, about the Navajo and, and, and the legends and the people, what kinds of things do you hear from people at events like Comic-Con or when you're signing in bookstores? You know, I have heard <laughs> probably the most important ones to me are uh, fans who have told me that they've never seen themselves in a book until now, or they've never seen where they grew up on the reservation, or the things that they experience, and even in the little details, um, food and clothing and, and, you know, phrase turns of phrase and things like that, that they've never seen it until they read my book. And, and, and that meant a lot to me. That's, that's probably the coolest thing I've ever heard. Why does it mean a lot to you to hear that? Uh, I guess because I didn't have that. You know, that's something that I didn't have as a kid. Uh, all the science fiction and fantasy that I loved growing up uh, was still dominated by white men. Farm boys on quests, you know, they got to do all the cool stuff. They had all the great adventures. Native characters, particularly Native women, they don't get to be the heroes of their stories. And so I have a daughter. I have a 10-year-old daughter. Uh, her dad is Navajo, and I'm her mom. I'm okay Wingate. And... Uh, to be able to make this story for her and for her little cousins, it's pretty big. You know, that's pretty cool to me. So, so I'm honored to be able to do that. We're seeing more uh, and more indigenous authors writing sci-fi and fantasy works. Why do you think that is? Gosh, you know, I want to say something about there's really not a big difference between, like, a lot of native culture and, and fantasy <laughs> and science fiction. I think we're sort of set up for it. You know, I think for me, especially writing apocalyptic stories, I think Native folks have already experienced an apocalypse. We've sort of seen the end of our worlds and, and all the sort of dystopian tropes you see in, in uh, movies. Uh, we've experienced those, our land, our land lost and our children taken away, sent to schools, things like that. Uh, and we've survived. Uh, and our cultures have come back and are getting stronger. And So I think these sort of stories speak to us uh, inherently uh, about who we are as people and and who we're becoming. And and plus, there's just a lot of Native nerds. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that. And if anyone's going to be a superhero after the apocalypse, it's going to be us. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Rebecca. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. 
Rebecca Roadhorse is the author of Trail of Lightning. I spoke to her last fall from Indigenous Comic Con in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her second book, Storm of Locusts, will be released later this month. The dark figure, backlit by the sun, filled the doorway of our home on Nipissing Reserve Number 10. I'm here for the children, the shadowy giant said, pointing a long finger at me. You howled. I shrank behind my mother. Here for the children? How old, he repeated. Eight. The whisper floated from my mouth. The Indian agent marched into our house and approached my father. You knew I would come, Ernest, he said. The children are going with me to the residential school. They are wards of the government now. They belong to us. Not Irene. She needs to be with her family. My mother wrapped her arms around me. I won't let you take her. The man shrugged. Give me all three, or you'll be fined or sent to jail. We have no choice, Marianne, my father replied, sounding defeated. It was only a matter of time before they came for the children. That was Nipissing author Jenny K. Dupuis reading from her book, I Am Not a Number. Jenny's book tells her grandmother Irene Cucci's story of being removed from her family and forced to attend residential school. When she wrote I Am Not a Number, Jenny knew that she wanted to have it translated into the Nipissing dialect of Nishinaabemowin, the language that her grandmother was forbidden to speak at residential school. Nearly three years after it was first published in English and French, Jenny's book is finally being translated. And it's a process that's involving many members of the Nipissing community. It's a book about my grandmother's experience being taken and removed from her home community of Nipissing First Nation along with her two brothers. They were taken by an Indian agent who arrived in the community and took them north to Spanish residential school. It details some of the things that happened to her at the school. From when she arrived, they changed her name to a number, they cut her hair, and when she returned home for the summer, she shared uh, with her family what had happened at the school, and they made a plan. And the plan was to to hide and to make sure that when the Indian agent came back, that they wouldn't have to return to the school. My name is Jenny K. Dupuy, and I'm an educator and author, and I'm from Nipissing First Nation. I always knew that I wanted to translate this book into our community language and dialect. Initially, the book was written in English, and when you think of the history of the residential school system and the story itself, the intent being to take away language and culture. For many young children that attended those schools, it did take away the language and culture. This is a way to to give back, and by writing it in the language and having it translated in the language by community members, this is an opportunity to help with the revitalization of the language. I don't speak Anishinaabemowin, and I felt that the translation had to go to the community, that community members had to be involved in the translation of it. Jenny really wanted to have this translation done in the Nipissing dialect. I felt compelled that I should do it, because I knew her grandmother. I knew her, and I, uh, and I felt I owed that to her. I spoke to her all the time in the language when I met her. She lived in Sturgeon Falls. And I went to school in Sturgeon Falls. My name is Muriel Sawyer. I am a Nipissing First Nation band member. I am a retired teacher of 40 years. I taught the Anishinaabemowin language. And currently, I am the deputy chief of Nipissing First Nation. 
that personal relationship that I had with Irene, I realized then I thought, mm, this has to be done. We need to do it here on Nipissing. But I also wanted to uh, give that to Jenny and to Irene, that here is your story now in the dialect that you were forbidden to speak at this terrible residential school. So we had to sort of broaden our understanding of what translation looked like or what it typically looks like, move from what it typically looks like in the publishing world to then take it to to the community and define it and what that means in the community. Initially, people are looking for translators, people that, um, you know, it's official, there's their official work, so to speak. And in this case, um, through many conversations, and those conversations happened over more than two years, we had to rethink the process. And in those discussions, I, I recommended that um, we we look to our the community and uh, we looked to some of those those language speakers who were already working in translation, um, specifically using the the uh, Nipissing dialect. We had a lot of conversations in the community to identify a small team to begin to work on the translation, and it was something new. It was something new for for a publisher to agree to do, to to work with community to help with the support the translation. If we're going to publish a story that's from Nipissing First Nation and uh, the experiences of people from Nipissing First Nation, it's vital that we do it in the community language. So translating with me is my cousin Geraldine McLeod, who is a fluent uh, Nishnabemwin speaker, as well as Tori Fisher, who is a Nishnabemwin teacher with one of our local school boards. When we initially translated, we flushed out the main ideas. You know, and then we go back. I think it's it's our eighth visit of editing, and when we go back, we thought this could be said so much better. This could be said in this way to really capture the idea. We've already have uh, read the story to two of our um, community members who are fluent speakers. Uh, one who is looking at uh, providing some input for us and maybe trying to glean some other ways of translating specific words. One of the elders, one of the speakers, she was following along in uh, in the book. She followed it in English, and she would often say, wait a minute, can you back up? Um, here's another way of saying that. Could you say it this way? Or is it better to say it this way? So we would discuss, the three of us, and Tori sitting there and, and, and listening to the dialogue that took place about trying to come up with some exactness and preciseness to a particular sentence maybe that she thought uh, should be included. I've actually stepped back from it and really let the team, Muriel, Geraldine and Tori, um, have the time that they need to work through the story. I look to them as, you know, they're language speakers, you know, that's something that's I hold really highly and they're doing fantastic work. From time to time, I'll get Facebook messages from them, sometimes uh, telephone calls, um, you know, in my conversations with them, they'll talk about some of the things that they've, that they're working through and and through their conversations, you you quickly realize that it's not just a straight translation. They touch on certain words, and you know they're trying to figure out the best the best word for it, breaking things down. There have been many challenges in the translation work that we have been doing, because there are certain words in English that that are very difficult to translate into Nishabemwin. You would not think uh, in this um, in this time 
that residential school would be a difficult word to translate. It's very difficult sometimes to translate English words because they didn't exist in our language centuries ago or years ago. Even though you would think now that we would be talking about residential schools, but I think we have been talking about them in the English language. We have not really sat down to actually articulate or come up with a word that really precisely describes what that was. We do have a word for school, but it does not convey the same meaning of what occurred in the residential school system. It literally translates into the children that were taken away. But it's much more than that. We are going to read the story to the language committee to come to some consensus to say, this is what this is going to mean. This is what this is going to mean for us in our community. So hopefully uh, they will be able to provide input. And of course, the more, the better. And in fact, one of the other speakers, I'm sure can relate to this story because she is also a residential school survivor. It feels that I'm doing something right. It feels that I'm helping to support something that somebody tried to take away, that I'm helping to support in the best way that I can with the revitalization of language, supporting education. My hope for the book, initially, it was always that people in my community would read it and it would start as a conversation piece to talk about you know, our local histories. It's gone much wider than that. People across Canada read it into the United States. My hope with the translation, it's going back to that same thing. I hope my community can take it back and continue learning the language. That was Muriel Sawyer and Jenny K. Dupuy. They are both members of Nipissing First Nation. The Nibising translation of I Am Not a Number is being published by Second Story Press and will be available in September. That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. We'll be back in this radio space next week for more community, culture, and conversation. This episode was produced by Stephanie Cram, Zoe Tennant, Kyle Musica, and Anna Lazowski. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at unreserved at cbc.ca or find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Thank you for listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I go say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.